Dr. Thomas Cowan has been a medical doctor for over 40 years, and what he's about to share on this podcast absolutely turns the germ theory of the medical model entirely on its head. It is such a revolution of thought that it's valuable just to open your mind, just clearly to explore a radically new hypothesis, and then try it on, see what you think. Obviously, there's an immense amount of research that I would want to do before I would even agree with everything he's saying, but I have to say it makes a lot of sense, and I absolutely appreciate it as an alternative hypothesis to the mainstream. So I can't wait to hear what you guys think, and please reach out and let me know because this was a podcast that I will truly never forget. Before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that this is pretty much the last week that you can apply for trimester three of Fit for Service. We're doing some incredible things in this upcoming trimester. We're going to be meeting in Sedona and enjoying one of my favorite places on the planet, which is pretty much like Mars, but with way better food and lots of air, like plenty of air in Sedona, which makes it significantly better than Mars, in my opinion. And of course, all of the different online things that we offer. But really, it's all about the community. You guys have heard me talk about this. The community is something that's absolutely incredible. Having that group of allies that can call you out on your shit, that you can share anything that you want, that you can form business partnerships that become lifelong friends at an incredibly high rate. I mean, when we did the polls, we found that nine out of 10 people were forming lifelong friendships as part of this community. And what's the value of that? It's immense. And I'm just so grateful to everyone who's applied. I know not everybody is gonna be able to participate in trimester three. So we'll share all of the lessons and all of the teachings and all the learnings that we get from forming this community. And just wanna send love to everybody who's interested, everybody who's applying. And for those of you who wanna try and get in, aubreymarcus.com slash fit for service. We've had close to a thousand applications and all of them are awesome. So just want to send the utmost gratitude to all of you. And once again, aubreymarcus.com slash fit for service. Dr. Cowan, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I'm uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I think one of the things that really impressed me was just the way that you had reframed the understanding of the immune system. I think so often we get lost in associating the symptoms that we have with the actual disease or condition we have, when really you make the excellent point that this is actually the body doing exactly what it's supposed to do to actually create the adaptation we need. And so that's not the actual disease that's actually the response to the disease that's part of the cure so if you can you know kind of explain some of that to everybody i think it's a really important point that will set up some of the future discussions about vaccinations about coronavirus about some of the other things that i definitely want to talk about yeah it's an interesting question and you know i can also say that this last four to five months has been a real eye-opening experience for me, you know, like most people. As, as a friend of mine said, it's like evolution has speeded up. Yeah. And uh, for me, and I would say that as embarrassing as this may sound for me to say this, but I realized that a number of things that I had previously written were what I would now call incorrect. 
And I don't like to admit that, but that's just happens to be the fact. So there you That's actually, that actually established your credibility in my eyes about a thousandfold from most of the people that you find in a lot of these academic or medical communities, because there's this natural tendency to never admit that you're wrong, to just double down on your former hypothesis and say, this is it, <laughs> you know, but that's not the way life works. It's not the way life works. And and I can also tell you that every mistake I made, and there were a number of them, and I'm gonna, the answer to your question is going to be one of them, uh, it was because I believed the conventional narrative too much. Mm. And I would often come to a kind of a fork in the road, and you know, like the old saying, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> I came to a fork in the road and I thought, Everything I learned says it's this way, and yet everything that I'm seeing with my eyes says it's another way, and I'm just going to equivocate. Hmm. And every time I do, I do that, it just it comes back. And, and so, what do I mean by that? I that's a great question, but the problem right now for me is. Uh, and I, I think I'll need to clarify this. I'm not sure I believe there is such a thing as an immune system. <laughs> Great. The reason is, you know, one of the examples that I use is if you if you get a splinter in your finger and that that's like a toxin, and then you make pus, and there's obviously bacteria in the pus, uh, the pus is the therapy for the splinter, right? Everybody can see that. That's not an immune system. That's a detoxification slash splinter removal mechanism, mm -hmm. right? There's a difference. Yep. And here's another one. So, so that's a simple one, but here's another one. People put debris in their lungs. It's called smoking or breathing, you know, stuff in the air and all that stuff and then they make a cough now we say they have a quote infection and that's their immune system but what's really happening is that the stuff that they just breathe into their lungs is like the splinter right and the body has to try to get rid of it because what else would you do if you're a body you've got this poison in you so you try to you know flush it out and that's what we call being sick. That's not an immune system. There's nothing to be immune against, mm. except if you keep putting splinters in your lungs, presumably you'll keep having a cough. Yeah. That's what I would do because I always ask myself the question, if I was this person's body, what would I do? If I have a splinter, I, I'd pop it out. And if I have to use bacteria to do that, so be it. Yeah, so in, in some ways what you're saying is instead of this broken human hypothesis, which I think is the mainstream approach, the human is constantly breaking and doing things that it shouldn't do. What you're really postulating here is that the human is doing exactly what it is supposed to do. It is constantly fixing itself in the most perfect way that it knows how to fix itself based upon millions of years of evolution and the you know innate intelligence of the species itself. And that's actually what's happening. Exactly. That was very well put. Because that's exactly what's happening. I, I mean, there's simple examples like, 
you know, I, I wrote a whole book on the flow of the blood, like the flow of any water can't possibly come from pushing of the heart. That's ridiculous. Can't possibly push that much fluid that far around the body. So if the flow is weak, right, for whatever reasons, and, you know, I don't know if you even need to talk about that, but just assume I'm right. The flow is weak. Anybody would, would put more pressure on the tubes in order to increase the flow, right? Because yep. the flow is key. If you don't have flow, you can't bring oxygen and food and get rid of waste products to your tissues. So that's what we call high blood pressure. It's a compensatory response to somebody who doesn't have flow to increase flow. And the only way you can do that, which is make more pressure. Now, somebody could say to me, yeah, but Tom, doesn't that cause trouble? And I would say, yes, it does. But you've put your, not you, but one has put their body into a situation where the only sensible remediation is increase the pressure. So, and the reason I know that is because over the years, I've helped people restore flow. I don't do anything with the high blood pressure and the pressure goes down. Because <laughs> once there's flow, you don't need high blood pressure. <laughs> right. Because forget it, it's, we're good. Uh, we got flow, that was the whole point in the first place we're good yeah that's a that's a i mean it's really makes so much sense but it's a revolutionary topic but of course it makes sense like if you're trying to water flowers that are a far part of your yard and your hose doesn't have the power to reach it well you got to put your thumb on the hose and you got to increase the pressure and and make it smaller so that it can reach those far parts imagine those being your dexterities and different other parts that are difficult to reach through your capillaries or whatever but one of the one of the effects of that is your thumb is going to get exhausted you know, and then the the exhaustion of the thumb is going to create problems. But if you just have a more high powered hose, then you can remove your thumb, and then you don't have the associated muscle cramps that come with your thumb being on the hose. Yeah, and then they amputate your thumb and say, "See now, <laughs> now, now your high blood pressure is all better." <laughs> yeah, and and the proof of it is if you say, "Okay, how many times does amputating the guy's thumb actually solve the problem of?" The, the plants aren't getting water in the end of the field. Never. You got to, then you have to have an artificial thumb, you know, and, yeah. <laughs> and then make an artificial thumb. And it, it's, it's crazy. And nobody gets, you know, cured that way because they're always giving you antibiotics for the pus and leaving the splinter there. Right. And it comes back. And back and back and back until I don't know what happens. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the issue with the lungs, and this might, you know, help us segue into what's going on with the with the COVID virus. Um, really, like what you're saying is that the cough, which is one of the signature symptoms of what we're what we're calling this virus, right? The signature symptom is the cough. You're saying that the cough, in and of itself, rather than is actually a productive way that the body is expelling some kind of pollution or some kind of dysregulation within the body you know would that be a, a fair hypothesis to say that if you're coughing it's because you're coughing for a reason that you're trying to expel something yeah yes you could also be coughing because your your lungs are being poisoned right the cough 
part is is their body's response. But your your lungs are being poisoned. That's mm-hmm. what's happening, and that's that's why. I mean, illness is poisoning, and you can kind of even prove that if you want. But but that's why we get that's why we get sick. And you know, the example I gave is in my original talk is if you're a famous dolphin doctor and you, you knew the dolphins around wherever Galapagos or somewhere were always fine, and then they call you and say some of the doctor some of the dolphins are sick in the same place. And you go there and you have one question to ask them. Uh, I don't think you would ask them, do the gen- dolphins have a new genetic disease, right? Or do the dolphins have a virus? Anybody would say, did somebody put some, excuse my French, shit in the water? Because mm-hmm. that's always what happened. They mm-hmm. spilled some oil in the water and then the dolphins get sick. I mean, that's, that's how life is. Yeah. So what is, you know, if you'd really take a look at this, you know, what is going on? What is coronavirus? What is happening? You know, what is, uh, what in your, in your medical opinion, you know, what is, what is really going on here? So I think, I think the place to get into that, uh, is to, is actually to go back through the history a little bit, because mm-hmm. I, I, the thing I worry about is that if I just go to answer that question, it's sort of out of context, and so people won't really get my point. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth or questions, you know, and, and I want you to decide what you think is relevant, but that's how I would go about this, Let's do it. if that's fine with you. Please. So it, it really goes back to the beginning of how do we know that a microorganism causes disease, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about here because we're told that this so-called disease, this well, the disease called COVID-19 is caused by a organism called a coronavirus, right? That's what we're told. So I think it's helpful to go back and look at the history of how we got here, that we would think that a virus causes this disease. Right? So that's what I'm going to... Yep. So it started with, with a very good and interesting and, every, and an observation that everybody makes, which is if you go to a place and a bunch of people get sick, it, that it may be that they're passing something from one person to the next. Right? I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable observation. And actually, yeah, it started yeah. in you know ancient Greece times. They used to think things were contagious, and uh, so things got passed, and maybe even things that we couldn't see. Now, the first thing I would say about that is it's clearly not true that just because a bunch of people in the same place get the same disease, that that means it's a microorganism, like a bacteria or a virus, unless you think that Hiroshima was a virus because a lot of people got sick on the same day or whatever, and it, was, we, it wasn't a virus. Now, some people yeah. then say, yeah, but if it spreads from one place to another, then that means it's a virus or an organism. But again, you know, Chernobyl was started in Russia or somewhere, 
and then it spread all over Eastern Europe and people got sick, and there's no case that that was a virus or any microorganism. So neither of those two are actually reasonable definitions or proofs. So how can you do this? And the example that I like to give people is imagine you have a cow, and the cow gives milk, and then people drink the milk. And for whatever reason, you know, we all know that cows are supposed to eat grass. But for whatever reason, you decided to feed the cow cardboard and dead cow parts and grains and spray it with worming agents and glyphosate and all these kind of things, right? I mean, we do that. Yeah. And so we get a sick, a sick cow who gives milk, but we don't necessarily know the cow is sick. And we drink the milk and we get sick, right? Mad cow. What? Mad cow. Yeah, right. Or we eat the cow and the cow and we get sick. But let's mm-hmm. just stick with the milk example. So we have the, we know that you got sick from the milk. And then you say, well, what, what happened here? So you look in the milk and you find a bacteria called listeria. And then you look in the stool of the person who got sick, they have diarrhea, and they also have the same bacteria. So this was around 1860 we're talking about. So Eureka, we found the cause, right? The listeria passed from the milk to the person. The person drank listeria, and that gave them sick. And that's essentially the germ theory in a nutshell. Now, I would point out that there is another possible explanation for this, which is the cow was sick, and we all know that poisons go through the, you know, through the blood and end up in the milk. So the milk has poisons in it, and the listeria are there to biodegrade the poisons in the milk. I mean, if you think about it, anybody who knows anything about gardening, if you put dead squirrels in your compost pile, you'll get funky bacteria in the compost pile. Nobody says the compost pile has an infection. (laughs) And interestingly, if you take the, the... the bacteria from the funky compost pile and put them into the healthy compost pile, they don't grow. They will grow if you put dead squirrels in the second compost pile, but they don't grow unless you do that. And so one could make the hypothesis that the bacteria are only there to biodegrade the poison and they have nothing to do with making anybody sick. It's the poison that's making you sick. Now, I would actually say, from my, the way I look at it, either of those two is a reasonable explanation, right? Could be the listeria, or it could be that the listeria are just biodegrading the poisons. And so the question is, how can you sort that out? Uh, and there's a very simple answer. You can isolate the listeria from the milk, right? Take them out of the milk, feed them to a person, and see if they get sick. And if they do, it's the listeria. With with one qualification that maybe the listeria have poison in them, but let's forget about that, because I don't think that's relevant here. If, Mm -hmm. If you can isolate listeria and make the person sick, then that's that's the germ theory. So that was done for about 40 years, where they took, they took people who were sick, 
like or whatever or, or or milk or something they isolated the listeria gave them to people or animals and as far as my reading through the medical literature in the last 150 years not once has anybody ever been made sick from listeria from listeria right can't do it hmm. in fact the only way that it was done was sort of fraudulently where they kind of slipped in poisons and stuff to make it seem like that's what would happen. And so there was no experimental evidence that that's how it works. And in fact, again, if you think about it in nature, you know, bacteria are scavengers. So the reason you have strep bacteria in your throat is you have dead tissue in your throat and then the bacteria come and eat it and to basically biodegrade and get rid of the dead tissue. That's the role of bacteria and fungus in nature. Imagine you had a forest and you cut down a tree and you said, I don't want this forest to have an infection, so I'm gonna get rid of all the bacteria and fungus in the forest. And next thing you know, you'd have a dead forest because all the trees would build up. Mm. Bacteria don't do that. They're, they're eat dead and diseased tissue. Uh, and when they do that, they cause certain symptoms, right? You know, it hurts and all that. And then it resolves and then you're fine again. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, def I really want to talk to you about strep throat because I had recurring strep throat as, you know, when I was growing up. And I think it's actually been responsible. The, the regular courses of antibiotics that I was put on when I was a, a teenager and actually from even younger, maybe from 10 to 10 to 17, I was on, you know, two dozen courses of antibiotics over that time, which I think has created a lot of gut issues that I've been kind of working to resolve for most of my life, just from the annihilation of my probiotic flora in my gut. So I, I definitely want to talk about that one specifically because it, it's so meaningful to me personally. But I think just it might be helpful to give an example of a case where bacteria is actually pathogenic in the way that the traditional model says and i think one of the things that you mentioned was um was it the the meningitis uh meningitis bacteria which has like follows the kind of conventional model pretty closely yeah except i was wrong about that so okay <laughs> here's the thing again it's it was it, it's so hard to shake yourself of this delusion so the bottom line is you do find listeria or meningococcus bacteria in sick people and you don't find them in healthy people. But when you isolate the meningitis, you can't make anybody sick. They, there is no possibility of a virus or a bacteria having been transferred and making anybody sick. So for those of you who read Own the Day, you probably saw that I included a section about nicotine. Now, obviously, everybody knows that cigarettes are terrible for you. Putting that kind of smoke in your lungs is not healthy, period. However, nicotine itself has a lot of advantages. And that's why I've been using some smokeless pouches called Snooze and also Lucy Gum, which is four milligrams of nicotine, comes in great flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, pomegranate, it tastes great and it's effective. It delivers a precise amount of nicotine, which I love to use when I'm writing, when I'm podcasting. I got one in my cheek right now, a little chewed up piece of gum from lucy.co that I'm using to help keep my brain sharp 
as I'm reading this very commercial right now. So if you're interested, check it out. You know, obviously there are some things to be aware of when it concerns nicotine. You want to be the one in charge of your nicotine and not vice versa. So with that caveat, I encourage people who are interested in this and who feel called to explore it to check out Lucy. So go to lucy.co, use the promo code AMP, and you'll get 20% off all of your orders. Again, that's lucy.co and promo code AMP for those of you who are interested. And of course, with all tobacco products, there is warning. This product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. What about chlamydia? That, seat, that certainly seems to be able to transfer from person to another person. I will go off the record and say that I'd have no personal idea about this, but perhaps I do. But like that seems to be something where you are actually you know, sharing some kind of bacterial infection from one person to another, right? I mean, that at least has to be true. <laughs> so you're getting into advanced germ theory debunking here. <laughs> And I would caution that we're not quite ready for that. <laughs> okay. The other thing about it, chlamydia is, is also a kind of a parasite. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about parasites right now. I'm talking about bacteria and viruses. But when I, when I get into uh, why do things seem to spread if we, if we go there, there's some very clear reasons but again, if you isolate the chlamydia, it's very hard to make somebody sick. If it comes in the context of a sexual act, so how do you know it's not something else in the, the act of sex or the, trans, or the sharing of fluids or something like that? Again, it's, it, it's a possibility, but one would think one would have to experimentally demonstrate that was what Koch's postulate said. You have to isolate the bacteria or the chlamydia and show that it does cause disease. And I can guarantee you, if you go looking in the literature, that isolated chlamydia, not part of this sexual contact, causes disease, I will change this upcoming book that I'm writing. Because <laughs> you're not going to find Right. And that's just the facts. And, and I realize for people that it's like, whoa, wait a minute, how can I wrap my for brain? Sure. And I mean, all I know is that's, you know, show me the evidence and I'll change my mind. But I know yeah. people have looked for 20 years and they cannot find it. Now, what happened after this, when the people in the late 1800s couldn't prove, not once, that a bacteria caused disease, and you know, if that was the time when they had microscopes, so they could isolate bacteria. And so they, for the first time in history, could see this thing that they said was contagious. And so they could isolate it, and lo and behold, it didn't work. And so then they said, well, we know these things must be contagious, and so there must be smaller things that we can't see, and they must be the things that are causing people to be sick. And those were called viruses. So it's too small. We can't see them with our normal microscope. We know that it's contagious. And if you say, how do you know? They said, because a bunch of people in the same place got sick. 
And so we know it must be. It's also a kind of warlike mentality. There is an enemy out there that comes, comes from the outside. We're going to find a way to kill it, and then we'll be fine. So the first one they tried this on was polio. So there was a new onset of this paralytic disease called polio. It happened to coincide with when they introduced lead arsenic in spraying the cows and the children and everybody else. And lead arsenic causes paralysis, but they didn't know that. So they said it must be from this unseen thing called a virus. So what they did then is they took the spinal cord or the brain or the stool or the uh, you know, snot from people with polio and they exposed it to you know, many, many different animals, right? So it's contagious through the snot or through the stool or it's in the brain. So they ground up the brain, put it, you know, exposed an animal to it, had an animal drink it, eventually injected it subcutaneously in the animal, and not one animal got sick. And they said, well, there must not be an animal model, which is a bizarre <laughs> thing to say, because, right, there is no animal. And then finally, and this was published in 1907, a guy decided he took the, the diseased spinal cord from a child with polio, ground it up in a blender, got about a half a cup of it, didn't purify it, didn't isolate it, didn't strain it, didn't do anything, ground up a half a cup of diseased spinal cord, got two macaque monkeys, drilled a hole in their skull, injected about half a cup of this uh, stuff into the monkey's brain. One of the monkeys died, one of them got paralyzed, and they held the monkey up and say, see, we proved that polio is contagious. And, you know, when I read that, I thought to myself, uh, there's a lot of different conclusions one could draw from that. But mine was, if I was a monkey and somebody was going to drill a hole in my brain and squirt half a cup of dead person's spine into my brain, the best bet is to run away. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> Because how is that possible that it proved this unseen thing was the cause? I mean, you don't know what was in that brain or whatever. Now, we go from there and- Or even, or even the aggravation of drilling the holes and inserting anything into the brain, you know, which is gonna create a massive disturbance on its own. Even if it was purified saline water, you're drilling holes in the head and squirting a bunch of it in there, is likely going to be some effects. So there's so many factors that it's just shitty science. Right, exactly. And it's a, it's a brilliant comment you made because you would expect it that they would do a control. Right. So they would drill a hole in the monkey's brain and, and inject a half a cup of, of saline or distilled water because maybe they got paralyzed because the brain herniated down the skull, which we know happens when your brain swells. And maybe that's why they died. And so you would expect that they would do a control and see, was it really the snot or not? And it's, you know, in an eerie sort of way, it's the same thing as with this so-called coronavirus. They don't do controls, and I can get into exactly what I mean by that. And so 
they, you, you never know, why didn't you do a control? And, and how do you know this, that squirting somebody's centrifuge snot that you grow on lung cancer cells that made some monkey, some hamsters get a cough and some get a rash. And that's how they proved that this was coronavirus. And you didn't, how do you know that slitting some hamster's throat and, and squirting down, you know, snot that was grown on lung cancer cells itself doesn't make you sick or a hamster. And that, believe yep. it or not, is the proof that the coronavirus causes COVID-19. I mean, isn't this why studies are supposed to be peer-reviewed? I mean, isn't this supposed to be like where peers look at this and say, all right, look, this study has a lot of holes in it, and aren't they supposed to point that stuff out? I mean, it's, it's amazing. All the peers, if you, if, you don't, if you don't believe in this science, I mean, I can tell you how they got to this is the strategy of doing it. If you question this, you're toast. Mm. Peer-reviewed science is... Is, is like an old boys network. Mm. You know, they, they, went, they went from this, if I can just finish the story, because it might help people get it. So they have all these diseases which they can't prove with getting amp. So, so they, they can't see anything under a microscope, right? So it's not a bacteria. They say it's an unseen thing called a virus, which just means poison. And then in, a, in 1930s, they, they essentially invent an electron microscope, and they finally can see these little particles inside cells or in the tissue. And it was like, Eureka, we found it. We and this, found is pol this is polio again that you're talking about, right? Yeah, it's a, a lot of different viral diseases. Yeah. Oh, my God. We knew there was something small here. And now we can see it under an electron microscope, right? So that was the, finally they found it, they proved themselves. So then we go for about 20 years where they would see these bodies, these inclusion bodies, so-called, or so-called viruses inside cells. They would then grind up the tissue and they would put it through a filter so that only things the size of viruses would come out in the, you know, in the filtering, right? So then they had purified, isolated viruses, which they could then characterize and figure out what kind of proteins they had in it. And then they took these isolated, purified viruses and exposed animals to them. And not once could they make the animal sick. And, that, and so they couldn't make a tissue sick they couldn't, they tried to grow these purified viruses on eggs or skin cells or lung cancer cells or whatever. They couldn't get them to grow on these cells. So they had no tissue model. So then they tried to get them to grow on animals and they couldn't get any animal to get sick. And so when you read that the reason why it's so hard to prove viral causation is because there's no tissue culture or no animal model and obviously you can't do it on humans because that would be unethical you you could say right that means you haven't shown that it causes anything so but they they say that is isn't it amazing that we figured out that viruses cause disease even though we can't make anything sick 
It's, wow. it's an incredible sort of sleight of hand that has been passed down. So after 20 years of doing that, that virologists essentially said, viruses don't cause disease, we're done. And that would have been the end of it. They proved themselves wrong. But then a guy named Embers had a brilliant idea. He said, no, no, it's, you have to help the viruses cause disease. So he took snot from a person, right, that, that supposedly has a viral illness, and he centrifuged it so he didn't purify it, he just got the stuff. And he puts it on, on tissue like cancer cells, and it doesn't grow. So he says, we need to help it grow, so we're gonna starve the, the tissue, right? We're gonna poison it with dyes and antibiotics and other chemicals, and that will allow the virus to grow in that tissue. And then it'll make thousands of copies of itself, and that's the, that we prove viruses kill cells. Now, Think about that. You think about the, this sort of horrible virus that's going to kill everybody. You can't even get it to kill like a skin tissue growing in a lab unless you starve the tissue, poison the tissue, in which case we now know that it produces things called exosomes, which, look, which are what we call viruses. And that's what happens when you poison a tissue. It it collects its genetic material and some proteins and excretes them. It's like pooping out poisons. And that's what happens when you, when you poison like a lung cancer culture. And then, believe it or not, they inject that mass unpurified into people and they call that a vaccine. So it's snot from somebody, not purified. There's, they don't filter it like you would do. They grow that on fetal cells, egg cells, and all the things that has it in there. That doesn't work, so they have to poison it to get it to work. And then they do, and then it produces all these particles, and that's a live viral vaccine. And then they take that mess, slit a hamster's throat, squirt it down into the lungs of the hamster. Some of the hamsters get a rash, some of them get pneumonia, and they say that proves that there was a virus that's contagious. That's, that's how we got where we are today. Yeah, that seems... Anybody uh... out there should say, this guy, Tom, is absolutely batshit crazy. <laughs> how is that even possible? And all I can say is, I wouldn't be sitting here saying this and risking everybody thinking I'm some sort of fool unless I knew every single paper that was done on this. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the, let's go to the, before we get into vaccines and continue down the coronavirus path, because I definitely want to end up there. Let's talk about strep throat, because this was something that I had for a long time and you mentioned it. And I'm just curious, it's something that a lot of us deal with. So in the strep throat, you know, symptomless, you get these pockets of white pus which develop in your mouth. And then everybody's really afraid. There was stories that I was told that if you don't treat it with antibiotics immediately, it'll attack your heart and you're gonna die. Right? That was the that was the the narrative. 
and nobody obviously did any real research on them. That was just what was passed down and that was expressed. And so as soon as I had the strep throat, they did that throat culture, they identified it as strep, and then I was on amoxicillin until I actually developed, you know, kind of, uh, amoxicillin didn't even work anymore. I adapted to that, so I had to go into stronger, you know, stronger antibiotics like Keflex and these other different things, Cephalexin, and that was just the way that it went for weeks. And so, you know, what is that? Now, when you look at something like strep throat, like how do you reimagine the model of what's happening and really what we should do? It's exactly the same as, as I just said. So first of all, do you know the percentage of people who, if you dissected their throat and tonsils, would have this strep bacteria growing in there? A hundred. Yeah, it's a lot. Okay, so we, are, we know that everybody has that bacteria, right? Just yeah. more or less. So we, we now know from what I just said that if you isolate the strep and, and squirt it in somebody or, or whatever, they don't get sick. So what are the strep doing there? Somehow you were poisoned. Now, how were you poisoned? You know, because people often say to me, uh, Tom, I wasn't poisoned. I'm perfectly clear. I didn't, I didn't have anything wrong. Well, first of all, if you examine human breast milk now, it's got something like 80 to 110 different carcinogenic chemicals, right? So we all are poisoned. The houses we live in are basically toxic glue and formaldehyde and all kinds of stuff that we're breathing in. We eat bad food. We have all kinds of, of stuff. And there's also psycho-emotional reasons, too. Toxins mm -hmm. can be, you know, all kinds of different things. So somehow you were being poisoned. You were being malnourished, misfed. You know, you're exposed to things. And so the bacteria decided to help you out and eat the dead tissue. Unfortunately, nobody understood that. So before the bacteria could do their job and actually get you to the other side so you are now sort of healthy again, assuming also you stopped poisoning yourself, they kept stopping it. And as any bacteria would, they tried to help you out again and again and again. And every time you would stop the process and it would, go, it would go away for a little bit. And then because you were still poisoning yourself and because you didn't ever let it go to resolution, and I'm not blaming you, just, uh, mm -hmm. it just has to go again. If you don't take the splitter out, you're going to get more pus and more pus and more pus. And now you've got two problems. You've got the splinter and you've got antibiotic toxicity. And, and nobody has ever said, you know, I think you should stop eating Cheerios every morning because that's poison <laughs> or milk from horrible cows that has been, you know, heat treated, otherwise known as pasteurized, etc. There's a lot of things. I don't know exactly your situation. Well, a few things come to mind and I don't know, you know, I haven't done the particular amount of research, but I was, I remember 
A lot of this correlated to when I started getting a significant amount of dental work. My baby teeth fell out, my new teeth came in, and so I got mercury fillings at the time. And I was also eating little fluoride pills, which were like those these little candies. And I actually found where the fluoride pills were in the pantry because they tasted delicious. And so when I wanted to treat, I would eat a couple extra of them. Because I thought, well, you know, these are good for me. So eating a couple more, it's like vitamins, right? So those are those are some of the factors. I was also eating you know, still my mom would feed me well, but then I would sneak away and I would eat Tyson chicken nuggets that were like so brown and gray that I don't think they were probably, I wonder what the proportion of meat that was actually in those things were just looking back. And I just drowned them in ketchup and mustard and all of these other things. So there's certainly a variety of sources that I could point to, even though I had a relatively healthy lifestyle. Right. But you know, what is fluoride? Fluoride is a very potent enzyme which is why they use it to harden teeth, which it doesn't really do, but it basically poisons your enzymes, which enzyme, enzyme deficiency leads to dead tissue. And so essentially what I'm saying is your body had a choice. It could leave this dead tissue in your body, which is an untenable situation, or you can use the only thing nature has to essentially biodegrade and recycle tissue, which is microorganisms. Mm -hmm. And if I was your body, that's what I would do. And I would hope that you would stop eating fluoride. And I don't remember what the first thing you said. Yeah, you're getting exposed to toxic mercury mercury in your mouth, as well as metals, which then also, you know, collect electromagnetic fields because they act as antennas. And so you get all these harmful electromagnetic fields floating around in your mouth, it's not surprising that you would get dead tissue in your mouth and the bacteria would come and eat it. And the, the, the way I know that's true from 40 years of doing medicine is that's how I do medicine. I say, take the metal out of your mouth, stop eating fluoride, you know, eat good food, and this strep go away. Well, obviously, as we all know, we are in incredibly interesting times. And right now is typically time to go back to school. For those of us who have kids, of course, and maybe for those of us who are still going to school. However, now is a different era. It's online school. It's a bunch of different things. But nonetheless, we want to support everybody who's on their own learning journey with as many products as we can. So we put a bunch of stuff on discount at Onnit for you to enjoy. We got spicy cooking oil and cooking oil at 50% off. This stuff is great. These composite oils are something that I use to cook pretty much everything. And I'm cooking all the time now. So definitely check that out. We got 30% off mineral electrolytes, which again, every single morning, I've started adding it into my morning mineral cocktail and a whole host of supplements. You'll probably find a lot of the things that you really like available and for sale until August 23rd. So go to onnit.com slash Aubrey, check out the back to online school sale (laughs) that we're offering here and if you're in a place where you can actually go to school awesome that's even better once again on it.com slash aubrey and check out all these discounts till the 23rd and if it's past the 23rd of course on it.com slash aubrey for 10 percent off absolutely everything now is there is there an instance in what you're talking about is so the pus development the fevers these different things are actually the body cleansing and purifying itself from whatever toxic element that you're ex- being exposed to environmentally or from your lifestyle. Is there a case where an intervention, a medical intervention is necessary because the body is going to overdo the reaction? 
right? So you're going to spike a fever so high, the body's going to try to so aggressively purge you of whatever contaminant that it has that it's going to run a fever so hot that you're actually going to suffer brain damage unless you take an anti-inflammatory, anti-pyretic, I think they're called or whatever, something that's going to reduce the fever. So there's a couple of there's a couple of things to to dissect in there. First of all, it's never the fever that is the problem. There is no such thing as it's too high a fever and it's going to fry your brain. Whoa, that's like a, <laughs> that's something we hear all the time. It, that is a complete unscientific superstition. You wow. could have a toxicity that can kill you. So let, let me be clear about this. Just it's like a pond, right? You poison, you know, you poison a pond and it eventually gets so much algae. What are the algae? They're biodegrading the poison. But if you keep poisoning the pond, you can actually kill the life of the pond. And then the mm -hmm. pond is dead. I'm not saying, I didn't say that there's never a situation where that toxicity couldn't kill a person. It absolutely can. Sure. I would say that in my 40 years, I've never seen that happen with people who, are, who I attempt to detoxify. But it could happen. And in which case, yeah, I might stop it with an antibiotic if they have meningococcal meningitis, I probably would. I would also know that this is not the end of the problem. They were toxic. That created the microorganisms, which, as you say, could become so abundant there that it actually chokes off the life of the person. That is possible, in which case you have to do something that I call in, in my, my mind protective use of force. Mm. So I get rid of it knowing that I haven't done you any favors except getting rid of it so you didn't die. I suppose that's a favor. Temporary solution. What? Temporary solution. It's a temporary solution, but you better detoxify. And the, the thing is, I can say that that's never come up. So it is a hypothetical situation. Well, it's come up when I was an ER doctor, right? So right. we have that. But when you, when, you, when you practice medicine in a different way, and I'm not saying it couldn't ever come up, right? But, it, but to, to base everything on that worst-case scenario, which even then still makes sense, that's crazy. Yeah. It, the, just the way you're talking uh, and it just makes me think about every different disease condition and i'm i'm really familiar with travis christopherson's work on the metabolic theory of cancer tripping over the truth are you familiar with his work it basically yeah. goes from otto von warburg's you know hypothesis that cancer is a metabolic disease you think of what cancer is doing it's basically eliminating your you know making it harder to eat and you're almost forcing yourself into a different metabolic condition, which a lot of the evidence is showing that changing your metabolic condition, can't, if cancer is indeed a metabolic disease, then what's actually happening in the body might be encouraging you to fast, which is then gonna put you in ketosis, which is then gonna rehabilitate the mitochondria. So maybe almost virtually everything that's happening as a response to a condition is happening exactly as it should. Right. Exactly, except the problem with some of what you just said and the, is 
the Christofferson model misses the linchpin in how to understand all this put together. But yes, otherwise, mm -hmm. I, I would agree. But I, I don't want to give an unqualified agreement to that because, because there's some things in there that are, that are more trickier than what, what you just said. Sure. But, but that was pretty good. For sure. Yeah. And it just, it just occurred to me because you have all these ideas that the body is doing something wrong. But, and that just was the thought that came to my mind, like maybe the body's doing something right. And I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I'm an, I'm a novice. I don't really understand this nearly as well as a medical professional like you, but nonetheless, just, just take it pretty well. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But just knowing that, that whatever's happening is probably happening for the right reason most of the time, except in very extreme and aberrant outlier cases. And that in and of itself is the biggest revolution of thought that any of us can adopt irregardless of whatever we're going through. And I think that even applies to, and actually sure it applies to, a lot of the psychiatric conditions. You know, I've been doing a lot of research on that as well. So these conditions of depression have biological you know, biological designs, these conditions of anxiety, psychological designs, ways in which the body is trying to highlight something so that you can fix this psycho-emotional stress by highlighting the symptoms. But instead, we just mask the symptoms and then continue the onslaught of psychological stress because we're not actually understanding that the body doesn't have a chemical imbalance. It's doing exactly what the fuck it should. Exactly. And, you know... The only thing I would say is when you introduce the central player in this, which is water, you, then the whole thing starts to make sense. So what I mean by that is if you imagine, so we have this, and I don't know if we want to get into this whole thing, but basically we are made of crystalline structured water. And how I know that, I, I, I go into many, many details of that in the book. But the, the way I think of it, it's like, it's like jello, right? And as long as jello is perfect, then the, the actual crystalline water acts as receptors for everything. It's like a radio. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it accepts emotions and feelings and thoughts and chemicals and hormones. And then like a radio, it processes them into something beautiful, which we call life. Now, that's the way it's supposed to be. Now imagine somebody put a poison grape in your jelly, <laughs> right? So that's like arsenic, or that's like mercury, or that's like antibiotics, or whatever. Now here's the question: How would you get it out of your out of, out of your gel, out of your your tissues? Because you're supposed to have like a perfect crystalline receiver, and now you've got an out of tune radio because somebody put some poison in there. If it was me, the first thing I would do is, is heat up the gel so it would dissolve, right? You make yeah. it run. And then I would flush it out with snot. And that's exactly what you see. People put stuff in, they get a fever that liquefies their gels, then they flush it out, we call that snot or mucus, they cough it up, and then you reconstitute your gels and go on your way. There's nothing, there's nothing like shouldn't be controversial or hard to understand <laughs> about that. Yeah. And, and think about it. So what is a cataract? You know, we have this perfect crystalline gel called the lens of the eye. It's made out of the interaction of certain proteins and water. 
and it's supposed to be transparent to the light. And you dissolve certain poisons in there, or you expose it to electromagnetic fields, which degrade the quality of the gel. And now it's opaque, and we call that a cataract. And then the light doesn't go through, and you can't see. So then you go to the doctor, and he rips your eye out and gives you a plastic eye, which doesn't work so well. But the whole problem is you've got poisons or something impeding the quality of your eye, of the crystalline gel in your eye, and that's what we call a cataract. Interestingly, one of, if you go to 1899, there's a reference in the Merck Manual that turpentine will cure people of cataracts. Uh, so what is turpentine? Tur turpentine's a solvent made from pine acid that gets rid of the poisons. Mm -hmm. So you give people turpentine, the poisons go away, the lens is clear again, and then you're done. <laughs> and you say, here's another example. People say they have osteoarthritis, bone on bone. So what is that? So we have a gel, a, you know, like a crystalline gel called a bursa and cartilage that protect your joints. Somehow that's disturbed so, that, so it hardens and disintegrates. And now you've got no repulsion, no, you know, two gels meeting each other, repel each other, and slide easily. That's called a healthy joint. They degrade and harden, and now you've got bone on bone. And we call that osteoarthritis. And then we put a metal knee in, and now you become a receptor for electromagnetic fields, and your life is worse than ever. Hearing you talk about, hearing you talk about this, it makes you this kind of revolution of thought about what we think about the body and how to actually, you know, provide interventions that are going to support it. I mean, obviously, the clear thing is just generally holistic support of the body. And I definitely want to talk to you about that as well. Like, what are your top things for the general holistic support? But just thinking about every single different condition, it makes you think with fresh, with fresh eyes about literally everything. You I mean you've mentioned several right here but you could just continually go down the list and say well with this new hypothesis that the body is doing what it should then everything is rethought you know treatment of i don't know herpes herpes virus or whatever you know like in that way there's lots of antivirus excretion of toxins <laughs> yeah that's what I, that's that's it i mean what you're saying is that now, here's another thing. Let me get into, now that we've established that, you, they, there's this question that you brought up earlier, or people say, well, what about like chicken pox parties? Or I seem to get herpes from another person, right? So everybody has that experience. That goes back to Greek times. I'm in the same room with somebody and I seem to get sick from them. And now, interestingly, if you talk about a herpes virus, you can find the same genetic material, DNA, in the first person and then the second person. So that is, becomes the sort of proof that you passed this so-called virus to the next person. Because the only way you could get that particular genetic material to the next person is if you somehow infected them with the virus, right? That's the theory. 
Now, mm -hmm. the first thing I would say is, again, you go back, and if you isolate and purify the herpes virus, you cannot make somebody else get herpes. So <laughs> that's just the facts. Um, now, so is it in the secretions or whatever? It's hard to know. But here's an interesting experiment. So, again, we're talking about the transmission of genetic material, right? That's really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So there was an experiment done by a guy named Luc Montagne who incorrectly identified HIV as the cause of AIDS, but then he redeemed himself a little bit with this. So he takes a beaker of water, has to be water, because if you don't have water, that water is the is acceptor of, re, of frequencies and resonance, right? So you put a beaker of water and you put a piece of DNA or RNA in the water. Okay, you with me? Mm -hmm. Yep. Then you take another beaker of water, put it on the other side of the room, and you put the raw materials to make RNA or DNA. In other words, free nucleic acids. And then you shine some sort of frequency or light on the first beaker, like an infrared sauna light or something. And then you come back the next day, and the exact same sequence of DNA or RNA will be in the second beaker, all the way across the room. This has been repeated in a number of different labs. So what is this quantum entanglement of, is this the quantum entanglement metal mo medical model? So here, here's why. We know that everything, okay, let's, let's back up a little bit. So I say to people, what we know is that material and shape and form are able to, to, to process or interfere with unseen energies. Let me say that again. The material and the shape and the form or the pattern is, is, is strongly influences even unseen energy forces in the world. So how do I know that? Because there's a thing called a Stradivarius violin and it makes the most beautiful sound and they make it out of very particular wood and they make it into a very particular form. And if you make it out of that particular wood and that particular form, it creates a beautiful sound, which is the organization of unseen, unfelt energy forms called sound waves. Mm -hmm. and, and if you make it out of a different material like plywood, or you don't bother to measure the, you know, the struts, it doesn't make the same sound. Right. And so we know that resonance is real in organizing um, unseen energy waves. And it, I don't think anybody thinks it's just sound because you can do that with all kinds of things. Now, a DNA or a virus is a certain pattern made out of a certain stuff that also has a resonance, we know that. And if you, if you meet up with somebody who has a similar resonance, which I think one could say is kind of the definition of sex, and interestingly, <laughs> uh, it's, it seems to even, I don't know this for a fact, but I think it actually happens more when 
you're having sex with somebody you kind of, quote, shouldn't be having sex with. <laughs> then you get this sort of disharmonious resonance happen. And lo and behold, you have the same genetic material created in you. Now, is, now here's, here's the reason I think that. I mean, there is some experimental evidence for that. And I, I would also acknowledge that this is sort of Tom thinking. But, but here's, here's the reason I think that. So we're told, and you had mentioned earlier, uh, sort of evolution, and we think that has something to do with genetics, right? So here's how it works. You, you know, we're told that it's because of random mutations and natural selection, right? So mm -hmm. let's say you're exposed to a toxin like glyphosate, and one person in the village has an enzyme or a protein because of their DNA, their mutation that allows them to get rid of the glyphosate, right? Yeah. So they have a selective advantage, and that that's that gets selected. Now, let's think about this. If it's one person and it happens to be a 60-year-old woman, the whole thing falls apart because she doesn't have any children. <laughs> right. And so it has to be somebody who has six children, three of whom have the mutation, and then they, you know, hopefully they have children, and they have children. And you know how long that would take for everybody in the world to be able to get rid of glyphosate? Oh, too long. <laughs> thousand years yeah by that time glyphosate's no no more and the whole thing just is ridiculous yeah. that genetic model is nonsense so how does it work there has to be a rapid response um, communication of dna or rna genetic material real time like everybody in a week or so that's what a virus is. You, mm. met, you have an adaptation, you get exposed to a new toxin, you break off a piece of, of RNA or DNA, that's what we call an exosome. That has a certain resonance. Everybody who's exposed to that resonates with them and says, oh yeah, we need to protect ourselves against this because there's a new bad boy in town. And then the whole thing spreads all over the world and everybody's good within a few years. And mm -hmm. that may sound phantasmagorical, that's a word, I don't know if it's a mm -hmm. word, but that's exactly how trees do it. If you get a beetle eating a tree, they make chemicals that go through the roots and have a certain resonance. All the rest of the trees pick it up and they make protection against beetles. And the, I'm just going to say one more thing. The reason is, is because this theory that we're all separate and in conflict with each other, that survival of the fittest, is the purest bunch of bullshit in the world. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Excuse my French there. But the reality is, if that tree doesn't help its neighbors and help the fungus and the bacteria and the rabbits and the squirrels, they're all dead. Yeah, and that I think 
a lot of what you're talking about sounds in the metaphysical realm, which has been demonized by science, right? These things that science can't currently explain are woo-woo, are unscientific, are, you know, and they get really demonized and outcast. And the people who propagate these systems of belief are then outcast as, as unscientific as, and, and all of these things. But it's just that science hasn't reached a level where it's able to prove that according to the current scientific gold standard models which are constantly evolving because what what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me i mean obviously from a, they, yeah. they, it is it is proven you can prove resonance creates dna the trouble with science is it's not very scientific <laughs> they believe in superstitions they believe that there's no energy that affects living beings. They believe without any evidence that they, they believe that resonance is not a part of life. I would love to see the double blind study showing resonance and energies are not a part of the life experience because every human being says they are. I agree. I mean, I agree with you. And I think it's just been this crazy inversion where they've, they can't prove that it's not, but you know they try to say that you can't prove that it is according to the ways, the limited means by which they've done it. However, you know where I was going previously was, I've been you know a psychedelic medicine advocate for 21 years in the traditional use of psychedelic medicine, and when you enter those altered states of consciousness, the understanding of the unicity, the the collected collective nature of all life and energy you feel it palpably it's a it's a known it's a known experience for me so i haven't applied it through the medical lens that you're currently applying it but i also have an un like undeniable knowledge a gnosis as the greeks would say a gnosis of the facts of what you're talking about so then of course it makes sense when applied through the medical lens i just haven't endeavored to do it probably because of the paucity of knowledge i have about these medical things and just my adherence nobody's i haven't heard this before but it's it's really like this is one of the most mind-blowing conversations i've had because it makes total sense it's just completely flipping everything on its head in a way that's the most significant flip on its head that I've heard. I mean, I thought we were going to talk about, you know, some vaccines and and I don't even think we have time to get into that in coronavirus, but in some ways this is more important because this same model is the foundation which you can apply to anything, whether it's coronavirus now or whether it's vaccines or whether it's whatever, this is the thing. This is the theory that flips everything and then if you can think through it, you know, you might need some support from people who can help, like yourself, who can help you think through specifics about what exact, exactly is happening. But nonetheless, when you understand the theory, you understand that it applies universally. I mean, you know, that was really good. Uh, brilliant. <laughs> Let me give you two more examples so I think you can really see this. So this is where this came from. So number one, there's a story, the people sort of in the 50s, 40s, you know, they were studying the Australian Aborigines. And they had this interesting ability to be able to communicate over long distances. They didn't have a cell phone or anything. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they were found uh, like a watering hole or a place that they would want to hunt, they would just communicate with members of their family or tribe who were like five, 10 miles away and say, go to this watering hole, and they would. And here's the interesting thing about science, is 
that was an observable, documented fact. There's no doubt. And then they said something very interesting. So they said, how do you do that? And they said, well, we just, we just connect with something they call dream time. And we can all sort of connect with that. And then we just say, go, you know, to this place here. And that's what they did. So then they say, well, we don't know if we believe this. Uh, so we're going to study whether dream time works by doing a double blind experiment. And they, the, the Aborigines said, yeah, but if we don't know we're doing this, we can't do it. <laughs> right? They yeah. have to know we're, that we, we want to do this. And they said, well, that's not science. You can't study it in a double-blind way. And they kept saying, if you don't let us know we're doing this, we won't work. <laughs> and then they said their conclusion was it doesn't work. And that's how we do science, even though the observable facts are the facts. Mm -hmm. Just because you or I or anyone doesn't know how they do it, I mean, I don't really know how they do it, you know. But I know that they did it, and I know that if I take them, you can't study that with this double-blind method because consciousness is an integral part of life. Yeah. Now, let me give you another example. Here's where this all got started, in my opinion. It got started in the 1840s or 50s with an interesting thing, which, again, a lot of these things I get from somebody else. This I got from Goethe, who's like the hero of, he, he's, he's a really brilliant guy. Mm. And it came because of this. Science somehow decided that if they wanted to understand frogs, if they wanted to study frogs and even help frogs, what's the first thing you do? You take a frog and you kill it, right? Yeah. Then you dissect it, you find out what the frog is made of and how it works and all that. Now, Goethe said, as soon as you kill a living thing, there's nothing to find out. It's dead. And besides that, I can tell you, I know for sure it didn't help that frog. Yeah. Because <laughs> that frog is dead. And, yeah. and now we've gone almost 200 years with a science of we first kill things and then we try to find out how it works. You can't. It's dead. <laughs> yeah. And it's taken the materialist reductionist approach, you know, to the absurd in which these things which are not material and can't be reduced a la consciousness, you cannot be a materialist reductionist and reduce something to something that is not in physical form that's currently able to be measured. So it fails. And then it understand it, and it will always fail. And all you have to do is understand that there's things that you can't measure and reduce that are influencing all of us all the time. And that's the only, that's the only piece of the puzzle that's, that's really missing. And it's not only that, so not only is it missing, but it's the only thing that human beings actually care about. They're called quality. The reason, and here's another example, I say, you know, if you have a carrot and you, you isolate and figure out how many atoms of sulfur and hydrogen and oxygen is, is, makes up the carrot, and then you buy a bag of that stuff and put it on the table, 
is that a carrot? And everybody says, no. What's it missing? It's missing the form and the life. Levity and neg entropy. Because uh, mm -hmm. life goes up and dead stuff goes down. And that's why we eat a carrot. Mm -hmm. Not because of hydrogen and carbon and all that. Because it has qualities which can't be measured uh, that makes it a realistic thing that we want to interact with. Yeah, it's like the essence, the fundamental essence of the thing that uh, you can't describe from the molecular model. Right. Why do you want this hand-built chair instead of a factory one? Because it's got a different quality. Yeah. Why do you want to go out with this guy or that woman? Because they have a different quality. Yeah, why does it feel why does it feel different to hug somebody and hug somebody else? It's still an embrace of flesh, but it's a radically different experience. It's exactly. the energetic the energetic exchange. Yeah. And so they're convinced science is convincing us with a flawed theory. Don't trust yourself, believe me, because you don't understand this. And that's how we get into this current situation. You don't understand viruses, you don't understand testing. You don't understand how this testing is totally bogus. So you have to just believe what we say. And the people are so confused because they don't know what the hell's going on that they just believe it. And because they're scared. It sounds a hell of a lot like what capital R religion did. You find something to make somebody afraid. I don't know, eternal damnation. That's a pretty scary thing. And you make people afraid and then you exert your power and then you rise and create these massive hierarchies which are unquestionable because in religion's case they had the only access to god so you had to listen to them and if you didn't listen to them you're going to burn forever well it sounds very much like what's happening in certain aspects of the medical model which is like we know exactly everything that's there it's too complicated for you and if you don't listen to us you're going to die and if you don't take these vaccines you're going to die if you don't follow this if you don't wear a mask and do this thing you're going to die you're going to die you're going to die and so people get scared and so when you're scared you're not thinking logically and so you'll listen you're more Supplicate. Yeah. And not only that, they, they, I don't know whether it's deliberate, I don't try to get into that in interviews, but when you hear what they say, so they say this, like the test for the coronavirus, it means you're either got a virus or you don't. And the antibody test means you're either immune or you're not immune. And I tell people, if your refrigerator broke and you go to the refrigerator store, and you say, I want a new refrigerator. What do you think about this one? And the guy said, yeah, it's a good refrigerator. It'll either keep the food cool or it won't. <laughs> you would say, what the hell is wrong with this guy? I'm not <laughs> buying that refrigerator. You, you would, you, can, you know that that's what you're looking for, is a cool food, you know. But because you don't understand what it means to say a test means you're either have a virus or you don't have the virus, the, the sort of gobbledygook of it makes you think, oh, I don't understand this. And so yep. then you, you're done. It means you're either immune or you're not immune. You're either a carrier or you've got active disease. All these words, which don't mean anything, they, and, you know, then we don't understand immunology, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a sort of, you know, cognitive dissonance campaign to make everybody just throw up their hands. I don't understand what these guys are talking about. 
I don't understand why you told us this two months ago and now this. I, I hope they understand what they're talking about. We'll just follow along. Because like you said, if I don't, something bad might happen to me. Right. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, let's let's close this off with, you know, what are some of the things proactively from your understanding that we can all do to just have that universal lift, to have the ability to kind of um, protect ourselves, support ourselves in a way that's going to actually help support the body to do what the body is designed to do and to heal us. I mean, it all starts with, you know, clean air and clean water and clean food and don't poison yourself with electromagnetic fields, which is, you know, just to say, um, one the two the two s- symptoms of this current COVID thing are hyper immune, hyperactive inflammatory response and low oxygen. And I've said from the beginning, all you need to do to get somebody to overactive immune response or inflammation response is to inject them with aluminum or have them breathe aluminum or glyphosate or cyanide. And then all you have to do to get get them hypoxic, low oxygen, is introduce a 5G frequency into the air, which then degrades the oxygen in the air, and it also degrades your ability of mitochondria to make oxygen or use oxygen, sorry, not make, use oxygen to make ATP, and then you've got all the symptoms which we call COVID-19. So because that's the problem, then the solution is, you know, eat clean, drink clean water and and clean food and don't poison yourself with EMFs and don't breathe in aluminum or inject yourself with aluminum. There's all these things. And it would take a lot to go into what do I mean by clean water and clean food? You know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I spend hours and hours writing about and stuff. But I mean, water without poisons in it, for God's yeah. sake. I mean, why is that so controversial? <laughs> you shouldn't <laughs> drink water that's got poison in it. Makes sense to me. Or, or eat food that's, you know, has never been, sh- you know, if you feed it to a laboratory rat, they die. Yeah. That's all. I don't know. Well, it goes against some of the mainstream models, which are that we're broken anyways, and we need something to fix it. The thing that the thing I want to talk to you about before we wrap this up, though, is the one part of that, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, I'm drinking spring water out of a glass bottle. And that's, you know, doing my best to have the cleanest water source I can. And I understand a lot of these, the solutions to the problem. What is the solution to EMF protection? If you are somebody that like myself that still needs to use a phone and still needs to, you know, be a part of the grid, I can't, I can't absolve myself. I can't remove myself from, you know, EMF in general. Are any of the EMF protection devices, they all seem a little kind of, I don't know. I just don't have a lot of confidence in whatever the EMF protection devices that are out there. I mean, what are, what do you recommend to protect yourself from EMF? So people have to understand that it all that the 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 part of us that that is influenced by energies, and that's what we're talking about, right? Energetic fields, electromagnetic frequencies. 
The part that accepts that is the water. The water, in a, and I have absolute proof, it's in, it's in books that I've written, and, and that if you, if you expose this perfect crystalline water to you know, man-made electromagnetic fields, you, you degenerate the crystalline structure. So the more your crystalline water structure is, is better, is you know, perfect, so to speak, then the more resistant you'll be. So if you want to know details, the, the best solution is, is something called Ophora water, O-P-H-O-R-A, um, and using biogeometry devices to, which are forms and patterns like a violin, that transmute the, these negative frequencies actually into harmful, uh, sorry, helpful frequencies that our bodies can use. That's the, as far as I can say, those are the two best things, as well as eating a good diet, uh, that you can do to protect yourself. So biogeometry devices and Ophora water, and there's, you know, Mountain Valley spring water is, is also good, but it's not Ophora um, Ophora water is absolutely the best water. I get it at Air One when I'm out in LA, and it's it's incredibly expensive, but damn, is it good? <laughs> it's damn good. Yeah. yeah so sure. I I can't help that. Like that's enough, right? I just can say what I what I use and what works. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, at a certain point, there has to be a collective awakening that we just can't push this envelope so far. Mm. And if there's twenty thousand or fifty thousand or hundred thousand or whatever many thousand. Uh, satellites put in the ionosphere, beaming electromagnetic radiation to the entire wor world, and then we're as if we're living in a microwave oven. I don't know that any water or any patterns or biogeometry things can can sort that out. I hope so, because you know I'm I live here too, right? Uh, so on a certain level, there has to be a kind of awakening as we're also remediating ourselves. Mm. Yep. Well, you're definitely uh, somebody who's leading the charge in that awakening. And uh, I really appreciate this conversation, appreciate what you're doing. It's, I mean, it's going to take me a long time to even digest this because it's hard to flip an entire construct on its head entirely. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun thoughts that I'm going to have as I kind of digest everything that you've said and, and continue to do my own research in it as well. So I uh, just want to say thanks and also give you the opportunity to point to, you said you're writing a book and uh, I've been, you know, on your YouTube channel, which is phenomenal. Um, where else can people, you know, take a look at some of the work that you've done? So we, we you know, we're sort of coalescing everything into a drtomcowan.com website, which is drtomcowan.com. Um, and so everything that we're doing and all the stuff that I use and the stuff that I talk about and the ideas, you know, it will all be on that website. And, you know, I, I hope I'm just getting started. Hmm. I'm not a spring chicken anymore, as they say. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I don't know. I hope I have things to contribute to this and I want to just keep doing what I can. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. 
Well, thank you so much, doctor. This was a real pleasure. And uh, I there's so many more things I want to talk to you about. So I know you got some books to write and things to do. But, uh, you know, at another point, I'd love to circle back and, and have a second conversation. You, you, you're, you're a great interviewer. And I'm not saying that as a brown-nosing thing, but <laughs> I can tell, I've done a, 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 so many of these, I can tell when somebody gets it. And it's really a pleasure to be part of that. So that is really... I, I just want to say that. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate, I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate that. I do my best for sure. All right. All right. Take care, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. See you, Dr. Cowan. Thanks for tuning in to this mind-bending podcast with Dr. Thomas Cowan. It's absolutely changed the way I think about the world. And I may not have fully believed and adopted absolutely everything that we talked about, but I'm thinking about it. I'm considering it. And that, to me, is something of immense value. So once again, thanks for opening your mind. Thanks for tuning in and listening. And I hope this starts your own journey of curiosity where you can challenge the consensus narrative and look at things in your own way and discover what the truth is for yourself. And of course, I'm going to continue down this path and see what I can find as well and share it with you all as well.